0: It's been a couple of weeks since we have been, uh, Mark chapter 6 rather, Mark chapter 6. It's been a couple of weeks since we've been here and I want to get a running start on our passage for this morning. We have seen from Mark chapter 6 that Jesus has sent out the 12 apostles on a preaching and healing mission. The effects of that were several fold. One of the effects was upon Herod Antipas. Herod was the wicked ruler who had put John the Baptist to death. And so Mark takes a little detour and um, talks about that whole scenario of what happened to John at the hands of Herod. The reason he does that is because when Jesus is doing his miracles and when he sends out his apostles to do miracles in his name, it catches the attention of Herod. And Herod is smitten in his conscience. He's convinced that Jesus is John the Baptist risen from the dead. Why? Because of his guilt over having unjustly put John to death. I called your attention to the proverb that says the wicked flees when no man pursues. What is pursuing them and what was pursuing Herod was a guilty conscience. So one of the effects of that little preaching mission was the effect it had upon Herod. The other effect was to increase the ministry load for Jesus and his apostles. When the twelve return to Jesus, they're followed by a large flock of people who are clamoring for help. How Jesus responds to that multitude, we will continue to study this morning. I'm going to read from verse 30 to 44, although our text will only be from 35 to 44. Mark 6, verse 30 The apostles gathered together with Jesus, and they reported to him all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, come away by yourselves to a secluded place and rest a while. For there were many people coming and going, and they did not even have time to eat. They went away in the boat to a secluded place by themselves. The people saw them going, and many recognized them and ran there together on foot from all the cities and got there ahead of them. When Jesus went ashore, literally when Jesus came out, he saw a large crowd and he felt compassion for them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. When it was already quite late, his disciples came to him and said, This place is desolate and it is already quite late. Send them away so that they may go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered them, you give them something to eat. And they said to him, shall we go and spend 200 denarii on bread and give them something to eat? And he said to them, how many loaves do you have? Go look. And when they found out, they said five and two fish. And he commanded them all to sit down by groups on the green grass. They sat down in groups of hundreds and of fifties. And he took the five loaves and the two fish And looking up toward heaven, he blessed the food and broke the loaves. And he kept giving them to the disciples to eat, to set uh, before them. And he divided up the two fish among them all. They all ate and were satisfied. And they picked up twelve full baskets of the broken pieces and also of the fish. There were five thousand men who ate the loaves. Last time we noticed the apostles' accountability to Christ. Jesus had sent them out on this preaching and healing mission and they were accountable to report back to him for his review, for his approval, for his perhaps correction, for his guidance, for further instruction and and for his encouragement. And I noted that Jesus is still sending out servants and we are still accountable to him. It is the privilege and responsibility of pastors in particular, but really all of us as the people of God to be reporting to Jesus on a regular basis and to be saying to him, Lord, how am I doing? With what are you pleased with me in my life? With what are you displeased? We still have accountability to Jesus. We have accountability in the final day. And the more faithfully we bring our lives under his review now, as I said last time, the better it's likely to go for us in that final day of accounting. So we saw the apostles' accountability to Christ. Then we shifted to see the compassion of Christ. The twelve apostles have come back from this mission trip. And they are no doubt weary. They have expended a lot of energy. The crowd is pressing upon them so that they don't even have time to eat. On top of that, there were the likely fears of what was going to happen to them. They knew what what had happened to John and they figured maybe they were next. And Jesus was sensitive to their weariness and maybe to their worries. And he purposed to take them away to a secluded place for rest and refreshment. And I reminded you of the importance in our lives of rest and refreshment. Our lives need to be punctuated with times of rest. We need to be working and then times of leisure and refreshment. Jesus saw the need for that in His disciples. We need to see the need for that in ourselves and in those whose lives we manage. We also saw His compassion for the crowd. As this crowd came to Jesus and the apostles and Jesus wanted to take them away, he went off in a boat about four miles in the northern, across the northern part of the, the Sea of Galilee to a secluded place, and we're told that many of them went on foot about ten miles, and some actually got there in advance of Jesus. Now, from the parallel in John, we do learn that they did have a time of seclusion. But when Jesus came out from that time with his disciples, he saw the great crowd that had followed him ten miles And he was moved with compassion. He saw them as sheep without a shepherd. They had been under miserable, pharisaic, legalistic leaders. And in his compassion, he taught them. He taught them with the the food of of the Word of God, of which he was the embodiment, not with the worthless husks of man-made traditions and distortions of the Word of God, which was the steady diet they had under their religious leaders. So we saw the compassion of Christ. But now we turn to Jesus' further dealings with the crowd, which includes this miraculous feeding of 5,000 plus people. I want us to see from verses 35 to 44 three things. The proposed test by our Lord that prompted the miracle, Jesus tests them. The divine power of our Lord that is portrayed by the miracle And then the abundant provision of our Lord that is pictured in this miracle. First, the proposed test by our Lord that prompted this miracle of the feeding of the 5,000. First note, there was a problem facing Jesus and the apostles. We see it in verses 35 and 36. When it was already quite late, his disciples came to him and said, This place is desolate and it is already quite late send them away so that they may go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. Jesus had taught them, perhaps late into the evening, and the people, this large crowd, had gone without food. And it was a large crowd. We are told that there were 5,000, and that includes only the men. So you can at least double that, 10 to 15,000 people and... That's a large crowd. The average town and village in that day was only made up of two or three thousand people. And so it was a formidable problem. And the disciples felt some responsibility. We've kept these people late as you've been teaching them Jesus. And and now where are they going to find food? Perhaps there was even a, a little accusation of Jesus, maybe subtly there, accusing him of keeping them so long. And so they they were facing this problem for which they felt some responsibility to now feed this massive crowd of people. And then we see the test from the Lord in verse 37. They say, Lord, send them away into the villages, the surrounding countryside, so that they can scatter and fend for themselves and find themselves something to eat. Here Jesus gives them a test. But he answered them, You give them to eat. You give them to eat. Now, why would I call that a test? Well, what else can it be, right? I mean, he's asking them to do something that is virtually impossible for them to do. Beyond their ability, beyond their resources. But we know it was a test because of what it says in the parallel passage in John. I ask you to turn briefly to John chapter 6. And I note that the the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000 is the only miracle that is repeated in all four Gospels besides the miracle of the resurrection. And there in John chapter 6, picking up at verse 4, we read, Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was near. Therefore Jesus, lifting up his eyes and seeing that a large crowd was coming to him, said to Philip, see this is the same scenario, but here Jesus is pictured as saying to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these may eat? Now notice, this he was saying to test him, for he himself knew what he was intending to do. Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread is not sufficient for them, for everyone to receive a little. Now, how do we reconcile these two accounts? On the surface, they may seem contradictory. In John, he's speaking to Philip. In Mark here, he's speaking to all the disciples. Well, it's easy to put together. Very likely earlier in the day, Jesus had said to Philip, he had put this challenge to him, how are we going to feed these people? Philip was a likely one to ask because he lived in a nearby town called Bethsaida. Philip, no doubt, had brought that problem to the disciples and they had discussed it among themselves. So they were of one mind in terms of how to solve this problem. But you see that Jesus was testing them. He was testing Philip. When he said, give them something to eat, he said this to test him. And here he's testing the whole band of apostles. So the Lord is testing them. Then consider the befuddled response of the apostles, verses 36 and 37. What was their solution? Verse 36, Lord, send them away so that they may go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered them, you give them to eat. And they said to him, shall we go and spend 200 denarii on bread and give them something to eat? So the disciples, the only solution they can think of is is to send these people out and, and they could fend for themselves. Otherwise, 200 denarii would not be enough to feed these people. A denarius was a day's wage, so 200 denarii would be roughly two-thirds of a year's wages that would not be enough to feed this vast multitude. Now, perhaps Jesus, in putting this test to them, was hoping that maybe they would think back in their minds to a similar scenario in the Old Testament, when the people of Israel were clamoring for food in the wilderness and God answered by miraculously providing food through Moses. What was that food? It was that flake-like substance that re- uh, uh, appeared on the surface of the ground every morning. It's called manna. Do You know what, Hebrew, uh, what manna means in, in Hebrew? It means what is it? Because that was their question. What is it? but it was like a coriander seed. It was sweet, bread-like, and it nourished them. And God supernaturally provided that manna. Perhaps Jesus was hoping they would cast their minds backward and remember when God supernaturally provided manna in the wilderness. But that's not where their minds turn. They're wrestling with much frustration as to how they are going to provide the food. And Jesus wants them to wrestle with the question, with the the, the, the challenge. He doesn't cut them loose from the pressure. He doesn't allow them to solve the problem by just releasing the crowd to fend for themselves and find food for themselves. He doesn't do that at all. No. After saying, you give them to eat, he further says, how many loaves do you have? And you can imagine the incredulous look on their faces when Jesus said that. How many loaves? Jesus, are Are you serious? 15,000 people, and you're asking how many loaves of bread that we have? And then after saying, how many loaves do you have? He says, go look. No, no, he's not taking the monkey off their back. You solve the problem. Go look. See what you have. See what resources you have to solve the problem. Friends, what is Jesus doing here? It is a test. But what is he testing? He's testing their faith. He's wanting to show them that they are incapable of meeting the challenge. They do not have the resources. They do not have the wherewithal to feed all these people. And no, five loaves and a couple of fish is a ludicrous solution to the problem from a human standpoint. He clearly wants to face His disciples with a responsibility That is beyond their capability, beyond their capacity, and beyond their resources. Now, let's think about this. Jesus was testing his disciples to try to show them that they don't have the resources to solve this problem. Now, do you think Jesus might be doing that with us today? After all, we are his disciples. You know what the word disciple means? Mathetes, it's a learner. We are just as much disciples as they. We as much as they need to be trained and taught by our Lord. And so if the Lord was of a mind to test his disciples then, might he be of a mind to test his disciples now? Might he be in the practice of testing you and testing me in the same way? I think so. And so I think it's a fair question to ask ourselves. And and let me ask you, point blank, what test might the Lord be putting to you in something He's asking you to do that is beyond your power and resources? In what area of your life is the Lord asking you to feed 10,000 plus people? And you think, I can't do that. I don't have the ability. I don't have the power. I don't have the resources. What are some possible areas where God might be asking you to feed 15,000 people? Lord, there's no way I can face that particular temptation and resist it. Lord, there's no way that I in myself can love that difficult person you have brought into my life. Lord, there's no way that I would have the courage to stand for Your truth if it means that I might lose my job for speaking out for You. There's no way in myself I have the courage to do that. Lord, I don't see it within myself to be able to forgive that person who has so wronged me. Lord, I don't see any way that I can be content in the current situation of my life. Lord, I'm not sure I can find a way to see the good in the evil things that happened to me and the abuse that I suffered in my childhood. Lord, there's no way that I see myself having the discipline I need to live the Christian life as You call me to live it. My brother and my sister, if that's where You are in Your response... That's exactly where the Lord needs you to be. Because the next thing we see in the text is the divine power of our Lord portrayed by the miracle. He faces them with this prospect of feeding the people, knowing they didn't have the resources, they didn't have the capacity, they didn't have the capability. And then we read, and he said to them, How many loaves do you have? Go look. And when they found out, they said five and two fish, and he commanded them all to sit down by groups on the green grass. They sat down in groups of hundreds and of fifties, and he took the five loaves and the two fish, and looking up toward heaven, he blessed the food and broke the loaves, and he kept giving them to the disciples to set before them, and he divided up the two fish among them all. They all ate and were satisfied." Jesus had tested them, and their faith fell short. It probably was one of those times that exasperated Jesus. At another point, Jesus would say to Philip, recorded in John 49, Have I been so long with you, and yet you have not come to know me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? The disciples sometimes exasperated Jesus by their lack of faith, and I think we do as well. So Jesus puts into action the plan that he had all along. Remember John 6.6 6 says when he challenged Philip to feed the multitude, this he was saying to test him, for he himself knew what he was intending to do. He was intending to do a miracle. First there's the preparation for the miracle. He gathers the materials for his miracle. Literally these five loaves of bread, literally in the Greek breads, flat cakes of bread and small fish, Dried or roasted. He organizes the crowd into groups of fifties and hundreds. Why did he do that? Probably for the sake of organization. Probably to prevent uh, a tumult and prevent greedy and rude people from pushing out the weak and easier to distribute if they're in organized groups. He blesses the bread. Deuteronomy 8.10 seems to be the basis for this. It says, When you have eaten and are satisfied, you shall bless the Lord your God for the good land which he has given you. And then the miracle itself. This is an astounding miracle. It says, he kept giving. And the tense in the Greek is an imperfect tense. Indicates this ongoing activity. The bread appears to be multiplied in his hands. The interesting thing is, Mark doesn't tell us, none of the gospel writers tell us exactly how this was happening. Was it multiplying in Jesus' hands? Was it multiplying as the disciples gave it out? He... he, He's not concerned about telling us how. And Richard Trench makes a, an, a good comment. He says, it is true wisdom to leave the indescribable undescribed and without so much as an attempt at the description. So somehow five loaves and two fish fed ten to 15,000 people. How it happened, we're not told. And it's not the writer's intention to tell us how. It was indescribable. And so we should leave it as undescribed and not be overly curious. But it was an amazing miracle. It was a miracle of creating. It brought into existence that which did not exist before. And, friends, here's the truth we need to see from this only God can create. That is, create ex nihilo, out from the Latin, or some say ex nihilo, out of nothing. Out of nothing. We create, some of you men are are creators in the sense that you build things, but you build things out of pre existent material. God, and Jesus here is God, creates out of nothing. There is nothing, then all of a sudden there is something. How? By the will and word of God alone, He creates. 2 Peter 3.5, for when they, mockers who deny the return of Christ, maintain this, it escapes their notice that by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and by water. How were the heavens created? How was the earth created? By the word of God. God spoke it into existence. Hebrews 11.3, by faith we understand that the worlds were prepared by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things which are visible, Genesis 1.1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Verse 3, then God said, let there be light, and there was light. Verse 6, then God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and there was. God creates out of nothing. And the point here is that Jesus Christ is God. Only God can create out of nothing. Jesus is creating bread, creating fish out of nothing. He's bringing into existence that which was not. Only God can do that. Jesus is God. And I might say here, I might point out that there is a a heresy afoot today. Many of you have heard of it. Reviewed it in one of the films. Um, It's the word of faith, or word faith, heresy. Heresy. And in that movement, they assume that they can speak certain things into existence. They have this thing of positive confession, negative confession. Don't say something negative because it will come to pass. But if you speak some positive thing, you will bring it about. Friends, that is a heresy. That is blasphemy. That is devilish. It's presuming the power of God. Only God can speak and something which did not exist comes into existence. We do not have that power and yet they arrogate to themselves that power. It is a devilish heresy, and it is blasphemous. But here is an important truth to comfort us as Christians. Are we not often like the disciples, facing a problem? It seems insurmountable. And we scramble for a solution. We ransack our brains. We take stock of our resources. We we count our denarii, and we come to this panic conclusion oh no, I don't have the resources. I can't meet this need. I can't handle this problem. I can't do this. And like they, we have forgotten the one who is with us, the one who is for us, the one who has promised never to leave us or forsake us. And that is the Lord Jesus Christ, and that he is the omnipotent God. If God be for us and Jesus is God and he is with us and for us, who can be against us? No person can stand against us because Proverbs 21.1 says the heart of the king is in the Lord's hand. He turns it wherever he wills as channels of water. No plot or scheme of man, no circumstance can work against us because our God promises to work all things in our lives together for good. All the circumstances of our lives, no matter how fearful, how uncertain, are like horses that will all be harnessed to pull the sled of God's will, which is for us always good and acceptable and perfect. The disciples here are at a loss. They don't have a clue as to how to feed this vast multitude. They're at their wit's end. But Jesus knew what he was intending to do. The point is this. They were out of resources but Jesus was not. So I come back and say to you, what are you facing in your life that is too difficult? What call of God is upon you in which you sense that you lack the resources? Realize Jesus does not. And you need to look to him, ask him to, to meet the need, seek him, wait on him, tap into his infinite store of resources. And His wisdom and His power will give you what you need. That's the lesson of this passage. Your Jesus is God. He has divine power. He's with you. He's for you. And you need to ask, seek, and knock. James says we do not have because we do not ask. Whatever you need, whatever you are lacking, wherever you are feeling your impotence and lack of power, ask and it will be supplied to you. But finally, we want to see the abundant provision of our Lord depicted by the miracle. The abundant provision of our Lord depicted by the miracle. You see, all the miracles of Jesus picture something about Him and His salvation. And and this one is especially rich in its imagery. First of all, the miracle points to Christ as the all-sufficient shepherd. Remember, this crowd is like sheep without a shepherd. Last time we looked at Ezekiel 34, where God indicts the shepherds of Israel because they were abusing the sheep, they were neglecting the sheep, they were feeding themselves and not the sheep, they were not protecting the sheep, they were not nourishing the sheep. And God says, I'm going to be a shepherd. And He promises to be a shepherd as the son of David. And that's a a prophecy of the Lord Jesus who comes as the good shepherd. In that previous scenario, we saw that Jesus, as the Good Shepherd, sees them spiritually hungry and he feeds them with the the food of of God's Word. Here, we see a people that are physically hungry and we see Jesus, as the Good Shepherd, feeding them. Verse 39 notes that he makes them lie down on green grass. Now, that's there for a purpose. Why green grass? The commentators ask is this just an, an aesthetic highlight? As one commentator says, a brightly colored clothing, a blue sky, a sparkling sea, and green grass? Or was it intended to be a veiled reference to Psalm 23? He makes me lie down in green pastures. The shepherd's psalm. Indicating that Jesus is feeding them on green grass because Jesus is the shepherd of that psalm. He is the truly good shepherd. So long as Jesus is our shepherd, we will not want for any good thing. He will feed us with His Word. And as long as we seek first His kingdom and His righteousness, He says, don't worry about what you will eat or what you will drink. Seek first His kingdom and righteousness and all these things will be added to you. So the miracle points to Jesus as the all-sufficient shepherd. This miracle points to Christ as the all-sufficient bread of life. Jesus is both the shepherd and bread that feeds His people. Turn back over to John 6, the parallel passage. Soon after John records the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000, we have this lengthy section in which Jesus talks about Himself as the bread of life. In verse 27, He ends up reproving this crowd He says, do not work for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on Him the Father God has set His seal. It turns out this crowd was only interested in physical bread. Jesus goes on to say, beginning at verse 31 of John 6, Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, He gave them bread out of heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread out of heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread out of heaven. For the bread of God is that which comes down out of heaven and gives life to the world. Then they said to him, Lord, always give us this bread. And they were thinking of physical bread. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger. He who believes in me will never thirst. And then in verse 48, continuing in this dialogue, I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread which comes down out of heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down out of heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread also which I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. The feeding of the 5,000 was a picture of Jesus as the bread of life, the one who gives life to our souls and the one who gives us eternal life. It points to Christ as the all-sufficient bread of life. But the final thing I want us to see is the miracle points to the full satisfaction that is in Christ. It is not by accident that Mark ends the scene of the feeding of the 5,000 with these words, They all ate and were satisfied. And they picked up 12 full baskets of the broken pieces and also of the fish. And there were 5,000 men who ate the loaves. Not for no reason does he say they were all satisfied. Their tummies were full. They didn't just get a, a little sampling. They were fully satisfied in their bellies, From five five loaves and two fish. And the proof of that is that they had 12 full baskets of the broken pieces left over. For some years in Philadelphia, we ministered to the Cambodian refugees. And one thing, you know, I, I needed to learn about the Asian culture so as not to give them offense. And one of the things I learned not to do was to eat everything on my plate because if I ate everything on my plate, that would tell the host or the hostess that I was still hungry, and they would keep putting more. So I had to leave a little bit on my plate, and that signaled to them, I'm satisfied, I'm full. And the fact that there are leftovers indicates that, that they had enough. Twelve baskets of leftovers. Now, they collected those, probably teaching us the lesson that that's not right to waste food, right? I don't know about you, but um, it's not good to waste food. You should give your children just appropriate portions and not it's, it's painful to throw out food when there are so many people starving. So it teaches us um, not to waste food, but it teaches us more significantly that they were fully satisfied because there were some left over. What does that point to? It points to the fact that Jesus Christ brings full satisfaction to our souls. Brothers and sisters, that is the testimony of every true believer. Now, we do have some who say they've tried Jesus. Have you ever met anybody who says, yeah, I tried Jesus? They didn't try Jesus. And never tell people to try Jesus because you can't sample Jesus. You either have to be all in or not. You can't try Jesus. Yeah, I tried Jesus. I tried the Christian life. It just didn't work out for me. It wasn't satisfying. No, you didn't try Jesus. Because if you really tried Jesus, you would be fully satisfied in the life that He gives. And in our closing moments, I I want us to think about the abundant, overflowing, twelve baskets left over life that the Good Shepherd, Jesus Christ, gives to all of us as His children. In Him, you have soul-satisfying answers to the great questions of life. Don't you puzzle as to why more people don't seriously ask these questions? Like, why am I here? Why does anything exist? What is a human being? What happens when I die, when I breathe my last? What, what happens? These great questions about life and death and eternity. Aren't you Stunned by the fact that more people don't ask those questions. Well, by the grace of God, you were made to ask those questions. And those questions were made to trouble you. And by the grace of God, you were given soul-satisfying answers to those questions, weren't you? If you're a Christian, your search has ended. You're not looking for answers in any other religion. You have soul-satisfying answers to the great questions of life. Why am I here? What's my purpose and what happens to me after I die? God, through his word and through his spirit, has given us soul-satisfying answers to those questions. And then when it comes to those unanswerable questions, like how in the world do we reconcile God's absolute sovereignty and man's full responsibility? Your finite mind hits the wall trying to figure that out. You cannot reconcile sovereignty and responsibility, can you? Eternity, infinity, endless space, endless time. Our finite, puny minds cannot wrap around those concepts. But even in those things that we cannot comprehend, you know, theologians talk about apprehending. I understand, but we don't comprehend. We don't wrap our mind around it. Even in those things, we're at peace, aren't we? Deuteronomy twenty nine twenty nine says, the secret things belong to the Lord our God. Those which are revealed are for us. and And we rest in the fact that we're finite. And even in those things we cannot answer. We have a certain peace and we entrust them to God. We as the people of God have the peace of heart in knowing that all of the guilt and punishment for our sins has been taken off of us and put on Jesus. So that we have the confidence to say with Paul in Romans 8.1 there is therefore now no condemnation. No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Our consciences are relieved of of the unbearable burden of guilt. We have the peace with God that Paul speaks of in Romans 5.1, therefore being justified by faith. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We have a clear sense of purpose in life. Knowing that whatever our circumstances, we are to live for the glory of God and for the good of others. We have a reason to get up every morning. We've been delivered from the, the nihilism or the nihilism, the, the, the sense of purposelessness and meaninglessness and nothingness of life that depresses an increasing number of people in our day. In this post-modern, post-truth age where there's nothing to live for. Like, like the, the um, road trip to truth says, if we are just matter, then we don't matter. And people are sensing that, and so you're seeing the signs on the roadside, you know, cautioning people to not take their lives and not exit this world. But, but their, their hope is vacuous. We have a real reason to live. We have an inward power to live the life that is increasingly to the glory of God and the good of others. We have the capacity to love God and love our neighbor because we have the powerful Holy Spirit living within us who empowers us to live that life, convicts us of sin, We struggle, yes. We struggle. The flesh lusts against the spirit, but the overall trajectory of our lives is one of upward progress away from slavery to sin and into more and more freedom of righteousness. We're able to cope with and survive the dark and sad providences of our lives because we have this monumental promise of Romans 8.23 that all things, even the most painful Losses of life, all things are working together for good to those who love God and are called according to His purpose. And in the context, you know that, that the, the, uh, the good in view is conformity to Christ. And although we do want to live happy lives, comfortable lives... Even more deeply, we want to be like Christ. We want to be conformed to Christ. And so we know that every circumstance, the happy ones and the sad ones, will make us more like Christ. And we've been given that desire to be more like Christ and be conformed to His image. We have the assurance that no one else in the world has. That all is well with our souls eternally. And that the barrier that has kept us from God, the barrier of sin, has been forever removed. You see... Between us and God, there's either two things standing between us and God. Either your sin stands between you and God, or Christ stands between you and God. If your sin stands between you and God, you can't come to God because your sin will keep you from God. But if Jesus Christ is between you and God, then Jesus is our mediator who takes away our sin and brings us to God now and in the life to come. Another aspect of the abundant life that Jesus gives, symbolized by by the abundant feeding of the 5,000 and 12 baskets left over, another aspect is the privilege and joy of true and deep friendships on earth with the people of God. Do you treasure that? I know the people of God can hurt us and sometimes wound us, but overall, don't you prefer fellowship with the people of God to everyone else? David said, they are the excellent ones of the earth in whom is all my delight. I don't know about you, but I I enjoy your friendship. I enjoy your fellowship. It is such a a privilege and joy to have fellowship with the people of God. Yes, we have our flaws, our flaws, our, our faults, our warts, our blemishes, but far and away, Christians are more humble, more kind, more reasonable, more selfless, and fellowship with one another gives us a foretaste of heaven. And something else that helps me, an aspect of this abundant life, and I'm in all likelihood closer to the end of my life than many of you, all things being equal, and I think of eternity a lot, and I think of passing from this world. You know what helps me to prepare, to take my last breath? I think of this. I look at my life and I say, what makes my life sweet? What makes my life good? It's only Jesus Christ. If I have a good and fulfilling marriage, it's because the grace of Jesus is in my heart and my wife's heart, enabling us to change and grow out of our sin and to love each other. If I have good relationships, it's because of God at work in my life, enabling me to be a peacemaker and, and, and to love people. Everything good in my life, every superficial thing I can enjoy, good food, hobbies, because I know that all is well with my soul and I don't have this, this gnawing, nagging concern of how am I going to fare in the judgment. Every good, everything good in my life is good because Jesus Christ is in it. And so, to some degree, we can say with Paul, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain, because to die is simply more of Christ. And if everything good in your life is because of Jesus, to die is simply more of Jesus. And it's better beyond our imagination. And so, brothers and sisters, how should we who are Christians respond to this portrait of Jesus Christ from this Miracle of the feeding of the 5,000, his abundant, overflowing provision, we are to give thanks for such a Savior as we have a shepherd to guide us, the bread of life to feed us, and one who has given you an abundant life, even this side of heaven. Yes, we have our struggles. Jesus said, In this world you will have tribulation. But, dear friend, your troubles and mine do not compare to the troubles of those who are outside of Christ, starving in the wilderness without a shepherd, living with perpetual, unrelieved, unremitting guilt, powerless at the mercy of a wicked, ruthless spiritual enemy, the devil, at the mercy of their own sinful nature with only natural conscience to restrain them, sucked into the maelstrom of a lost world with its jaded views of life and reality, miserable and unfulfilled relationships, And having the threat of eternal judgment hanging over them. And whatever troubles you think you have, they do not compare to those who are outside of Jesus Christ. So let's draw near with thanksgiving to this good shepherd. And let's enjoy the abundance of delights he gives us. And he paid so dearly to purchase. But if you are not a believer in Jesus, let me just say as a final word that you need this good shepherd because you are lost, you are wandering, and you are starving for truth, and you need this good shepherd, you need him as the bread of life. Do not be like those in John six sixty six, who after hearing about Jesus as the bread of life, It says, and as a result of this, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. Don't be like them, but rather be like Peter. When this large number, and this was the crowd we're dealing with in Mark, leaves Jesus after hearing all of that, after being fed all this food, they leave him. And Jesus turns to the twelve and says, will you also go away? May your answer be like that of Peter. Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for being the good shepherd to us. Thank you for the abundant supply of all that we need. Thank you for the abundant life that you give us. Forgive us for not tapping into that life. Help us to tap into the rich resources that you have given us to enjoy you and enjoy this life now, knowing that the best for us is yet to come. Thank you for the hope you've given us. For any who may sit among us outside of your salvation, would you reveal yourself to them as the bread of life that they need and give them the faith to embrace you and to feed upon you. We ask in your name. Amen. Come to the...